You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by climate change biologist Mike Holmes. Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, Tesla. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, not not a problem at all. So you're in the Department of Integrated Biology. Uh, what year are you? I am just finishing my fourth year, going into my fifth. Fifth year. Uh, nice. Yep. And what we should just start from the beginning. What brought you to biology and integrative biology? <laughs> okay, so you mean when did I start showing an interest in biology? Sure. I mean, were you like two, five, well, 25? I, <laughs> have I yet shown an interest in biology? Yes, I, I've shown an interest in biology since I was a kid. I remember going out in the fields behind my house and looking at animals and, and plants and stuff and not really knowing what they were, but I was always curious about them. And my mom always told me, you should be a biologist. You should be a biologist. And, you know, what kid wants to listen to their mom, listen to her advice? So I went to, when I finished high school, I went off to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for my undergraduate and was actually a forestry major. And my first quarter in, I, I didn't really like it. And my brother, my older brother, was a, an engineering student at the time at Cal Poly. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll try engineering. He's doing well at it. He likes it. We're both good at math. I can probably do this. So I switched into engineering, took a bunch of engineering classes, and a year later realized this is not what I like. My mom was right. I should switch into biology. So and, you're a flip-flopper. Eh, yeah, flip-flopper. We'll, mm. we'll call it that. Okay. Um, but actually, it was uh, I didn't really realize it until the winter break of my sophomore year of college, and my parents took my brother and I to Hawaii, and we went on a whale-watching trip, and this is fairly cliche, but, you know, I, I was seeing whales out there and said, wow, you can study marine mammals and, and, you know, for a career. And I said, wow, I should go into marine biology. And, you know, it's something my mom had always been saying, go into to biology. And so I said, okay. So uh, winter quarter after that at Cal Poly, I was still enrolled in engineering classes, realizing that I was going to be switching into biology and took, let's see, I took differential equations linear algebra, statics, and then a philosophy class. And I ended up with a 0.6 GPA that, that quarter because I was not interested in engineering anymore. So I switched into biology the next quarter and began you know, doing some research with, with a professor at Cal Poly, Nikki Adams, uh, on sea urchins and really developed an interest in marine biology. So the, the moral of the story is if you're not interested in something, you're not going to do a good job at it? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. I mean, there's lots of people that, that hate their jobs that are good at it. The moral of the story for me was if I'm not interested in it, don't pursue it because I will end up not doing well at it. And uh, but, but you didn't end up in marine stuff. So uh, what changed your mind? What brought you from <laughs> the marine mammals to the terrestrial world? Well, it's kind of an interesting process. I, I said, you know, I, I like general marine biology and, and you know, what, what to do with that. And as an undergraduate at Cal Poly, I was studying the effects of UV radiation on sea urchin development. So we were looking at how UV radiation delays mitosis in, in early embryos of sea urchins. And it was really fascinating. And um, my advisor, Nikki Adams, at the time, had done a research assistantship uh, in Antarctica. And she says, hey, this is something you might be interested in. So I, I found out the application was due like the next week. And I sent an application, sent my CV. My, uh, Dr. Adams wrote me a letter of recommendation. And I ended up getting accepted. To so, Antarctica. 
to go to Antarctica as a research assistant. So that was, let's see, that was spring of 2002. So winter of 2002, I flew down to Chile and met up with a team of scientists and was aboard the Lawrence M. Gould research vessel. And we sailed down to Palmer Station, Antarctica, and spent six weeks down in the, in the Antarctic summer researching krill ecology and uh, some reproductive biology. But I was basically there to, to help catch krill and to measure them. It wasn't really intense you know, research on my part, but it, you know, some interesting questions that the PI was doing at the time. I, it sounds pretty intense to me, if only because you were in Antarctica. So uh, <laughs> we need to break this down a little bit. How long do you have to be on a ship to get to Antarctica? It actually depends on the season. So when I went down was summer. We, we left in oh, right after Christmas in 2002. And it took us about four days to get down there. But, you know, some other people I'd talked to have been on ships at different times of the year, and it can take up to two weeks to, to make that, that passage. It's some of the most treacherous seas in the world. So in the wintertime, you know, in July and August, the, the seas are really bad, and it, you know, you can get blown off course, and it's uh, it can be pretty dangerous. But luckily I was down there when, when it wasn't so bad. It was pretty mild. And does everyone go to Palmer Station? Is that the only place there is? No, there's research stations all over the continent. There's three big U.S. stations. There might be more now. I'm, I haven't followed up on it in a while, but there's Palmer Station, which is kind of on the, the big peninsula that sticks up towards Chile. There's a South Pole Station, and then there's a really large research station south of Australia that's called McMurdo, and it can house you know thousands of people at, at any given time. So these are big. How big was Palmer? Palmer was eh, maybe the size of a, a small high school. There was, if I recall, there was probably five or six main buildings, you know, housing, research laboratories, dining halls, those kinds of things, and then a, a handful of sheds and, you know, places to house automobiles or, or snow cats and things like that. So it wasn't like, this isn't like the thing, John Carpenter's the thing, where you have like six or seven people out there slowly going insane. Well, no, I mean, I, I was going insane the whole time just, you know, because I was on a ship. No, there was yeah, probably 30 or 40 people at the station. I think fewer people over winter. But, but yeah, there's, there's always a, a number of people there doing various tasks, you know, keeping up the station. If they're not just doing research, there's, there's always several people there. And what was your day-to-day like? Uh, it was a 12-hour day, and I had the, let's see if I remember this correctly, I had the noon to midnight shift. And so I'd wake up. You know, about 10.30 in the morning, have a little breakfast, maybe go to the, the treadmill or, you know, whatever weight equipment was on board and then go down and you know, take over my midnight to, to noon colleagues. And we would we would run transects, you know, from kind of along the peninsula, the Antarctic Peninsula there. And uh, we'd run transects back and forth, you know, miles and miles of transects, lowering nets into the water, collecting krill at different different depths. And then we'd, you know, the, the nets would be down for Oh, half hour to an hour, and then we pull them up, pull out the plankton that we got, and then sort them and and you know take random samples and and measure them and record the data. Uh, we also did some reproductive biology experiments where we would put gravid females into jars and then wait for them to lay eggs and then collect the eggs for later genetic analyses. So you've also worked in the other big A, so to speak. Africa. Oh, Africa. Okay. You're making weird faces. <laughs> well, I, did, I, I didn't know what big A you were talking <laughs> talking about. Yeah, no, that one. Okay. Uh, you know, from Antarctica to Africa, they might be two of the most different places you can be in general. So when I got back from Antarctica, I realized I, I really liked extreme environments. I, I was really interested in extreme environments. And 
my uh, advisor's husband, Tom Moylan, had done research on deep sea hydrothermal vent worms. I was like, well, I didn't even know people studied the deep sea. That's really cool. So I applied to graduate school to study deep sea marine biology and went to University of Oregon. And with Craig Young at the Oregon Institute of Marine Biology, I study deep sea corals and how they respond to sedimentation. So these these corals live at the bottom of the ocean. They're big habitat forming species. They, you know, their mere presence allows other species to exist there. And there's a, a bunch of human practices, fishing practices that are harming these these corals. And so one of the things that we do is when we're shrimping, they drag nets under the, you know, at the bottom of the ocean and this tears up the corals, but it also kicks up a lot of sediment. So I was looking at how sediment affects corals, and I found out that it does affect corals. And while I was at Oregon, I took a class from Joe Thornton on molecular phylogenetics, and, and that's basically using DNA and RNA, you know, big molecules in organisms to elucidate evolutionary relationships. And that really got me interested in, you know, the idea of evolution. Coincidentally, at the same time, my old high school, Granite Bay High School, where my father was still teaching math, was embroiled in a big controversy where the school board was voting to teach intelligent design. And this was during mm-hmm. the whole, yeah, so intelligent design is the, the new flavor of creationism. And so, you know, knowing about my knowledge of molecular phylogenetics and my interest in evolution, and then seeing that the school board was trying to teach this, I became really um, engrossed in the creationism evolution quote-unquote controversy. And so I, I really started reading more mainstream or popular books about evolution. And, you know, after I finished my master's, I, I spent four years teaching at community colleges and, and w- was in that time reading about evolution and realized that I wanted to go back and get a PhD and really study evolutionary biology. And so I ended up, you know, getting accepted to Cal and during my first summer, I went to Africa. Uh, I, I was on a professor's grant over there, and what, what she was going to be doing was studying vertebrate paleontology over there. And, and so my goal was to go out there and scout areas around uh, Olduvai Gorge, which is in Tanzania, and scout areas that were potential fossil sites. And I was basically mapping the entire Olduvai Gorge. And so I spent, I think, four or five weeks over there, and then a week up in Ethiopia at, at a conference on paleoanthropology. It was really interesting. And since then, that, that was 2011, since then I, I had to finalize a, a research project. And so I'm obviously really interested in evolution, and I also really like controversial subjects. So I said, hey, why not study evolution and climate change? And where I work, the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology in our department has an ongoing research project where they are collecting animals, collecting skins and and DNA tissue and skeletons of animals from California that were, you know, in in areas that were surveyed 100 years ago. And so we can compare the the modern specimens and the historic specimens to look at evolutionary change over time. And so that's what I've been doing. And this is called the Grinnell Resurvey Project. And so I'm looking at specimens from the Grinnell Resurvey Project, and I'm looking at how small mammals especially have responded to climate change over the last 100 years. And I'm looking at cranial morphology and looking at some genetic work as well. 
Okay, you said so many things. Okay, let's uh, let's break them down. Yeah, first, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates. It's the talk show where I interview graduate students about their work. Today I'm joined by integrative biologist and climate change biologist Mike Holmes. He's been telling us about his field work around the world and his sort of windy journey through the sciences, all the way from engineering and forestry, and forestry even, forestry. all the way from forestry through the sciences to where he is today. Okay, part one. We all want to know what happened with the intelligent design <laughs> debate at your school. Oh, Did it go so, through? Yeah. So, you know, I, I would talk back and forth with my old biology teacher and, and of course, my, my father, who was still teaching there. And it it was a very conservative school board, and it came down to a single a single person voting, you know, against it. And and the reason he voted against it, even though he had, he was a very conservative individual, but the, the teachers in the district, all the teachers except for a single teacher, signed a petition saying, we do not support teaching non-scientific materials in a science classroom. And he said, I you know, this may be against what, what I personally believe, but I'm not going to go against what the teachers believe is right. And so he voted against it, and it, it failed in, in that district. So people do believe what teachers say. <laughs> some people. <laughs> Hopefully, I mean, as a, as a teacher myself, I I hope at least some people believe what, what we say. I mean, teachers are an invaluable resource, and and they're preparing future generations, so we should listen to them. Yeah, and uh, definitely at some point today, I want to talk about some of your teaching experience. But moving on, okay, point two, uh, the Africa thing. So, how different was that from Antarctica, or was it pretty much? I mean, is it the same? I mean, you said extreme environments. Well, it's not as extreme as as deep sea environments. I mean, I guess it depends on what you define as extreme. You know, there's uh, there's a theory that life evolved in the deep sea, so anything that's not in the deep sea would then be considered extreme. But co- comparing what where we live, you know, in this moderate you know, Mediterranean climate of California, yeah. So so Africa, where we were, was not at least at the time of the year I was there was not you know ungodly hot. It was certainly a lot warmer than than where I was in Antarctica, but it was very moderate temperature, and you know we could wear jeans or shorts, and it was fairly mild climate. It was it was actually nice, that, you know, very nice. The the people were extremely friendly. The the local Maasai uh, guides and and workers were you know some of the most genuine, kindest people I've ever met. So it was it was a really neat experience. You know, aside from just the paleontology and the you know learning about the the history of this area, uh, you know, the the recent history of this area. It was it was you know an incredible experience. Okay, and now moving on to now, you mentioned that what you're working on is called the Grinnell Resurvey Project. Yeah. So that really that really brings into focus some of the things that museums like the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology can offer. I mean, beyond just like specimens, but this comparative, this idea of comparing California across a hundred years and having the materials to do that. Can you comment on that at all? Natural history collections, as I've come to, to realize, are you know an incredibly invaluable resource. Estimates worldwide are that that there are something like three to five billion specimens housed in you know public, university, and private collections worldwide. So yes, we we've learned that natural history collections are, are incredibly valuable in and of themselves, in that they they represent the diversity of life on Earth, but also in that we can use them to to look at how animals and plants have responded to environmental change in the last 
oh, 200 plus years that, that we've been broadly collecting organisms. And this project's all focused in California, correct? Yeah, there's three main areas that have been resurveyed up around uh, Mount Lassen, uh, Yosemite, and then the Southern Sierras, Sequoia Kings Canyon. And there's some other areas that, that are planned to be sampling or in the middle of sampling, including the White Mountains in Eastern California slash uh, Western Nevada, the Mojave Desert, and then the Warner Mountains up in uh, Northeast California. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm biased because I spent a lot of time hanging out with paleontologists, but 100 years, 200 years, it just doesn't seem like that much time. How much has climate actually changed in that time? So it, when we talk about this, there, there's a broad misconception of what climate change is. And, you know, a lot of people revert to the old definition of global warming. And what they get is this idea that everywhere on Earth is getting warmer all the time. And that's not exactly the case. And so climate change is a more appropriate term for this because what's happening is that across the, the planet, the climate is changing. And it's changing in different ways around the world. For instance, Yosemite has gotten significantly warmer, uh, you know, several degrees warmer in the last century, whereas the, the area around Mount Lassen has not increased in temperature at all. But the area around Lassen has increased in precipitation. So you get these different effects of climate change due to our, uh, you know, increasingly concentrated greenhouse gases in the, the atmosphere. And because of this, you're getting a, an overall warming you know, the, overall the planet is getting warmer, but you're getting different, I don't know if microclimates is the right word, but you're getting different changes in different parts of the of the world. So even in California, you might get areas that are warming, some areas might actually be cooling, and some areas might be getting wetter, some areas might be getting drier. And if I remember correctly, you said you're looking at the skull and cranial morphology or shape. Why Why the skull? Why is that a useful part of the body. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know you're laughing cuz <laughs> Well, is it useful? I mean, yeah. No, I mean there's the obvious reasons that, you know, it houses our our brain, which is, you know, is you know, from what I'm told is fairly important in our biology. Depends on the person. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe not for for my work, but but for, you know, for most mammals it's or for most vertebrates it's an important important aspect of their biology. And so the cranium is is acting as the medium between the external environment and the central nervous system. So it houses all the special special organs, it, the the eyes, the ears, the nose, uh, and the mouth. Okay, did I forget one? No, I think that's touch, it. but that's not. Yeah, that's found everywhere. Okay, so so you have the 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 special sensory organs, and if there if there's environmental change, this species this species as a whole needs to do something about it. They're going to, to react on an evolutionary time scale. They're going to either move, okay, you can, if, let's say it's getting warmer, they can move to a cooler environment. Uh, they can adapt, so they can evolve or, you know, change within their biologic means, something we call phenotypic plasticity, so changing, not necessarily genetically, but changing within their, you know, within the, the limits of their uh, genetics. And, uh, so they can they can move, they can adapt, or they can die. So we've certainly seen species or populations going extinct from climate change. But one of the the, the hallmark study of the Grinnell Survey Project was a paper put out in 2008 by Craig Moritz and and colleagues in the MVZ, and they showed that in the Yosemite, over half the mammals species have moved up slope. Some 
significantly so, you know, hundreds of meters upslope over the, over the last 100 years. So presumably Yosemite is getting warmer, you know, animals are moving upslope. So that's one aspect, they can move. And what I'm looking at right now is looking at a species that hasn't moved. It's, it's found everywhere throughout the elevational range of, of Yosemite and, and, and found everywhere in California. So it really hasn't, you know, it, it can't move. It, it, you know, as a species, it can't move. And so I'm looking at, okay, well, if it's not moving, then what are some other, and it's not dying. Obviously, we're still finding it here, so it hasn't gone extinct. So what are the adaptations? How, how could it be adapting? And so I'm looking at cranial morphology to kind of get some of the underlying ecological change that might be happening. So if uh, the species environment is changing, let's say, oh, you know, maybe it's a new community of plants, you know, different types of plants that they're seeing, the species might be adapting by changing its food habits. Okay, and so we might see that as changes in the, where the muscles attach in the skull that are used in feeding. Okay, or, you know, there might be adaptation to different light conditions or different you know, types of habitats that, the, that this species might be utilizing. Or maybe it's a, an adaptation in the, the rostrum or the nose, the nasal cavity, you know, to, to different um, precipitation or different amounts of water, moisture in the air. So basically what I'm looking at is how are these things changing? You know, what are the physical adaptation or physical changes that are occurring? And that's setting, that'll set the stage for where to go next to actually look, okay, well, if we're seeing, you know, changes in the, what we call the masticatory apparatus, the, you know, what's, what they're using to feed, then we can go back and look and say, okay, well, these populations that we've seen change, what are the ecological changes we can look at historic you know, plant records and things like that and compare them to modern and see if the species is in fact you know, experiencing ecological change which would be driving a dietary shift. So it's not just like it's getting warmer so their head's getting smaller or whatever. There's all these other interactions with, with other organisms or you know you mentioned plants. It's not just like this one-in-one -one relationship then. Right so not I mean not everything is moving up slope necessarily, and not everything that's moving up slope is moving at the same rate. So the species that I study, which is a, you know, a deer mouse, is not moving up slope, but, you know, the, the plant communities it lives in, its predators, uh, the things that it eats might be moving up slope, might not be moving up slope. So there's all these different interactions, you know, where you can't just look at, at a single species to, to, you know, understand the full effects of, of climate change. It's really, you know, ecosystem level changes that are occurring. What I'm taking away from this is that species actually affect other species. So maybe like, for example, humans as a species, when we do things, it's not just like a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, action and reaction. They're like this whole network of like life on earth that might somehow play into that. Sure. Can I, can I give an example of, of how that might have, so, yes, so not a, not a climate change type thing, but, but a classic example is the sea otter, which lived in the North Pacific. And, you know, in the, I believe it was the 1700s, uh, fur traders came down the coast of Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, and Baja, uh, California, uh, to hunt sea otters because they have, you know, some of the, the nicest pelts in the world. They're really nice. I've pet, I've pet a pelt. Right. Mean, mean critters, but, you know, great soft. pelts. Soft. Hard heart, soft pelt. <laughs> and so, so when these fur traders, you know, were cruising by, they hunted the sea otters to near extinction. Okay. So that's a single species. But the sea otters eat sea urchins. There's a little spiky purple things that you see, you know, in tide pools. And when the, the sea otter population or species numbers went way down because of overhunting, 
the sea urchin population exploded. So now we have way too many sea urchins. Well, sea urchins feed on kelp, and kelp is the, the brown, leafy-looking stuff that, that you find off the coast of you know California and, and Western North America and, and Eastern uh, Asia. So here's these, these sea urchins that are feeding on the kelp. Well, now with all these sea urchins, the kelp community, the kelp population goes way down. And all the things that are depending upon the kelp population, all the hundreds or thousands of invertebrate species, the fish species, even other marine mammals that are living in there, are now affected because this population of kelp is dwindling. So now the sea otters have rebounded to some extent, and sea urchins have gone back down, and the kelp population has rebounded, and the ecosystem is a little more stable than it, than it was a few hundred years ago. But we could definitely make some climate change comparisons to that as well, just in the idea that small effects are, um, so what, what seem to humans to be small effects actually can have wide-reaching impacts throughout the globe. Sure, yeah, you know, and, and one of the classic examples is uh, ocean acidification. So when we pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, more CO2 gets absorbed into the ocean, and you know, a- adding something like carbon dioxide to the to water makes it more acidic. Okay, and there are certain organisms that depend on the acidity of the the ocean to do their daily functions. Corals are one of them. You know, so they secrete this this hard exoskeleton, and as it's getting more acidic, they are less and less able to do that. And so you see entire coral communities basically dissolving or being unable to to produce their skeletons and that and, and you know as i said before these you know coral communities provide habitats for thousands and thousands of species so if you if you're getting rid of just these few coral species you're having you know huge ecosystem level effects you know that spiel sounded you know maybe like you've get it, given it a few times i know you mentioned you teach and that you've taught before so can you tell us a little bit about that? About my teaching experience? Yeah. About, when I finished my master's in 2006, my wife and I moved back to California from Oregon, and I got a job at Cuesta College teaching general biology and, and you know later environmental science and human anatomy, a bunch of different things, and, and since then have you know taught at three other community colleges in California, and I, you know, teaching a whole swath of uh, topics within the biological sciences, but Climate change is is always a an issue or a, a topic that that I address in my classes, because it is so it is such a, a powerful force driving environmental change and driving adaptation or extinctions or movements of species. So you know whenever I'm talking about ecology and evolution, climate change is always an underlying theme. It's always you know brought up. So I try to you know, provide examples of you know how climate change might be causing. Certain extinctions are causing species to move northward or causing them to move upslope and try and relate that to the topic of ecology or the topic of evolution that we we might be studying that day. Should we be concerned as people, as humans, should we be concerned about climate change? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, it's it's the most pressing issue of our time. It's, you know, not just a an ecological thing. You know, we I personally have the belief that we are stewards of the earth and that we need to do our best to preserve it and maintain it so that future generations can also, you know, enjoy it and that, you know, we just have a duty to other species. As one of, you know, millions of species, we have a duty to play our part and, and you know, keep things as as pristine as we can. But, you know, aside from just ecological changes, there's also economic changes. Economic effects, there are political effects, there are just general demographic effects. So, 
climate change is resulting in sea, uh, sea level rise and certain nations, I'm thinking of, you know, like the, the Maldives or uh, Vanuatu, you know, down in the South Pacific, these island nations that are not that far above sea level, if sea level rises a little bit, entire nations will be flooded. So this could potentially cause you know, refugee and political crises. It's resulting in droughts and, and famine worldwide. So it's not just a it's not just an ecological thing. It's also an economic and a you know a humanitarian thing that we need to address. And sort of speaking of the future, as we we talk about addressing these things, what would you recommend to students, high school, undergrad, or even masters who are looking to pursue a similar research path as you've taken, uh, whether it's marine or terrestrial or somewhere in between? Well, I, I don't recommend taking the path I chose. It took a little longer than I <laughs> than I'd hoped to, uh, you know, to get to the final goal. But uh, you know, I think it's it's good to explore your options. If you're somebody who's interested in science at whatever level, you know, if you're K-12 student or you're an undergraduate, ask around, ask around your university or your town and find out who's doing what research. Find out if there's something that sounds interesting to you and and talk to them. Talk to the advisor, talk to the graduate students doing that research and see if you can volunteer, see if you can just interview them and, and figure out what, what they do. And if it sounds interesting to you, you know, look into it. You know, there's there's so many websites now that describe, you know, the best programs for ecology or physics or math or whatever it might be that, you know, something that interests you is being researched and taught somewhere. And so, you know, make connections with people, talk to them, express your interest, never stop expressing your interest and keep pursuing what you want to do. Well, sounds good to me. Do you have any last words for the audience, Mike? Yeah, I forgot to tell you about one other cool. Uh, tell me. The, the other big A that I went to. Yeah. It, uh, it was the abyss. So the I, abyss? Yeah. So I, uh, when I was doing my, my master's work, I was studying deep sea corals, and I got to go down on the uh, Johnson Sea Link 2, which is a deep sea submersible, and I got to take two dives in it. And the, this is a big you know submarine, but it has a big fishbowl-like you know, apparatus in the front where, where the pilot and, and a researcher can sit. And, and then it has a, a very small coffin-like uh, enclosure in the back. So I, I got to take one ride in the, in the back and one ride in the front and got to go down to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico and pick up corals and other invertebrates off the bottom of the ocean. And it was really cool. We actually turned off the lights going down. It, it was the middle of the day, but once you're below, you know, three or 400 meters, there's no, no light down there at all. And uh, as we're going down, our, our pilot turned off the the lights and it was just this amazing almost fireworks display of bioluminescence these bacteria that are lighting up and you know so you could see the outlines of different things swimming by as they encountered these bacteria and they, and they would light up it was really cool that sounds really cool it was very cool man the magic of science right yeah <laughs> i don't know if you're supposed to use those two words together but uh if by magic you mean the wonder and awe then yes if by magic you mean beyond the realm of, of the natural world, then no. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty fantastic. It's really amazing all the things that you've been able to do through science. And in, even if your route was circuitous, you definitely got you got to do a lot of great things and you inspire people to go into science. That's what we want to do. You, we want to, you know, go to the bottom of the ocean and go to Antarctica and, like, go yeah. wander around in Africa. <laughs> great job, Mike. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited and, and so happy that, that my mom – you know, instilled in me that the biology is a is a good course of action for me, even though I didn't necessarily realize it until several years after she'd been been telling me. Yeah, thanks to moms everywhere. <laughs> thanks, Mike's mom. Well, I think that just about sums it up. 
for us here at The Graduates. My name is Tesla Munson, and you've been listening to The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with graduate students here about their work at UC Berkeley. Today, I've had the fortune and the pleasure of being joined by climate change biologist Mike Holmes, fifth year in the Department of Integrative Biology and the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology. We'll be back two weeks from today for another episode of The Graduates, 9 a.m. on Tuesday, July 1st. We'll be hearing from musicologist Kirsten Page. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.